Hey guys, welcome to the City of Champions podcast. Proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. I'm going to start this week by apologizing, and I'm apologizing because I've had a month hiatus uh, from my last episode in which uh, times just got a little crazy. Um, Trouble scheduling with a couple guests and a little bit of work got in the way, Uh, but I'm back. I'm rejuvenated. Hopefully this kicks off another stint of weekly podcast for y'all. So this episode is brought to you in part by the Alberta Blue Cross Wellness Summit, which happens on October 10th. The Wellness Summit is a day to explore fresh perspectives and practices around wellness. This year, the focus is on what it takes to create healthy workplace cultures where everyone thrives. Supporting the health and wellness of employees is becoming a major consideration for many workplaces, and Alberta Blue Cross wants to connect the dots of what it takes to create healthier workplaces with happy people. Among the speakers is Drew Dudley, whose TEDx talk on everyday leadership has been viewed millions of times. You might know it as the lollipop moments talk. Definitely a good one to tune into. Uh, He reminds us that we all have the power to improve each other's lives. The Alberta Blue Cross has designed the summit so that you're not just sitting and listening. You'll have a chance to actively engage with the information, the speakers, and other attendees, and will come away with practical tools and evidence-based resources you can use, whether you're a frontline worker or a C-suite executive. The summit is at the Renaissance Edmonton Airport Hotel on October 10th. Learn more at thewellnesssummit.ca. This week, my guest is Edmonton Ward 5 City Councillor Sarah Hamilton. Councillor Hamilton is serving her first term in the position, and she's also one of the youngest members on City Council. Her background is in visual culture and critical studies as part of the fine arts, which she mastered in at the School of Art Institute of Chicago. This was a really enjoyable conversation because we meandered with the natural flow uh, organically, and I kind of went off script a bit. We talked about life as a city councillor, of course, but we also got into her previous political experience with the Democratic Party in Chicago in 2012, while Obama was running for re-election. Councillor Hamilton had some incredible insight into the proliferation of internet memes used in politics, as well as the psychological underpinnings of their effectiveness. It sounds really dorky, but it's not once you hear her talk about it. Uh, As I'm inclined to do, we spent some of the conversation discussing pro sports, and her love for the Chicago Cubs, as well as how those experiences with culture and community in that world translate to the political sphere. Uh, I try not to have high expectations with the podcast guests because conversations can be unpredictable. Uh, My guests might be having a bad day or I might be having a day where I'm off my game. But I'm thankful that more often than not, my guests completely blow me away with their insight, as was the case with Councillor Hamilton. Uh, I'm really excited that this episode is bringing me back from the month hiatus, so please sit back and enjoy my conversation with Councillor Sarah Hamilton. Councillor Hamilton, thanks so much for joining me, having me down at your office here. Thank you for uh, inviting me to be on your podcast. Yeah, the City of Champions, you are now officially uh, the fifth City Councillor I've had on, which is appropriate because you are a counselor for Ward 5, of course. (laughs) Uh, I want to get into all things Councillor Hamilton, but before that, got to give some recognition to your baseball team, the Chicago Cubs. We're currently leading the NLC division in a really tight race, might might I add you. Yeah, the Brewers are nipping at their heels, (laughs) right? And um, 
Last year, they didn't make it into the postseason for the first time in a couple of years. That was really hard. Um, also, because for the first time in a couple of years, I had time to sit down and watch them. Um, but uh, there's, it's really competitive right now, yeah. the NL. So I have to confess, I'm yeah. not a baseball guy at That's all. That's okay. I've been to a game <laughs> at, at um, in Toronto, and I've sure. been to a game at Dodger Stadium. Mm-hmm. I love live sports. I go to any event live. Yeah. Um, but it just wasn't something I follow. But that being said, I did look at all the divisions, and you guys are actually like it's all, all within first to last is six games. Mm-hmm. Every other division is like 14, 20 games, um, so that's interesting. Yeah, tight it's, race. Is it always that tight? Uh, you know, the last couple of years it has been. Um, my brother and I made a, a pact. Um, my brother got me into baseball. I bond with him over sports. I would say I'm not a natural sort of. I don't have a natural affinity for sports, but. Um, my brother and I met each other halfway. He developed a love of theater and I developed a love of sports. <laughs> so um, uh, he and I made a pact last year that we were going to try and see a home game at every um, major league stadium in the league. Mm-hmm. And so last year um, we'd done Chicago Wrigley before, but we hadn't done uh, the Chicago White Sox stadium before Mm -hmm. together, so we did that, and then we took the train up to Milwaukee for the day and Mm -hmm. saw the Brewers, and they are a very good team. So um, the entire National League right now is very competitive, and we saw in the uh, wild card game, um, I think it was a wild card, the Rockies are a great team, the Dodgers are a great team, um, the Brewers are a great team, the Cubs are a great team. So. Um, if you're not a die-hard Cubs fan like myself, then uh, I think it's good baseball. It's yeah. just good baseball, and there is nothing like watching good baseball. Right. Um, we often talk about baseball being very romantic, which isn't like like a romance novel, but it's idealistic, mm-hmm. right? Watching an underdog um, come from behind and win, uh, you know, win a game that they didn't think that they would win. Mm-hmm. Is, incredibly compelling to watch how do you as a Canadian how do you identify the fact that it's America's game like is there is there any struggle there because so much of baseball to me seems to be tied to that American patriotism it's like it's like as as American as apple pie and baseball I think is the same right <laughs> well I think there's two things first of all I'm a, I'm a dual citizen and mm. I have a American heritage um, and I'm very proud of both my Canadian and American roots um, but I also, I don't consider it an American game. I consider it a thinking man's game. Okay. And I say this because one of the thing, like one of my favorite movies, one of my favorite books is Moneyball. Mm-hmm. And it's about, if you've seen the movie or you've read the book, the premise is that you need to rethink something, um, even if you've played the game your entire life. Right. And in the case of Billy Bean, it's about what are we taking for granted in our business that maybe we shouldn't be taking for granted or maybe isn't actually helping us play better baseball and as a young political organizer that kind of thinking is extremely helpful in uh, figuring out you know to um, paraphrase Nate Silver what's the sound like what is the signal and what is the noise Mm. what are you actually look what are what's the information that helps you make good decisions and what is the information that everyone thinks helps you make good decisions but right. actually doesn't yeah yeah so that i took it a long way from baseball through data analytics mm-hmm. to 
to politics. I think that's unbelievable. I would have never actually made that correlation, but you're totally right. And, and myself as a hockey fan, I know like the advent of Moneyball did have an impact on hockey yeah, because people, people started going more into the advanced analytics of it. Now it's, I think baseball is more stats relevant than hockey. Like, mm-hmm. you know, from knowing people on the inside of hockey, like there are certain elements that just don't get quantified. And yeah. there's too much randomness. Like with hockey, like things are bound, you can bounce off any playing surface, any board, any, any stanchion. Like there's so much randomness. Baseball is a little bit more predictable because you've got that repetitiveness, just pure volume of throws. Uh, but I like what you said. That's really interesting about learning to look at problems from a different perspective and separate the noise and the signal. So I'm sure that's helped you a lot. I want to dive into that. Okay. But I also want to talk about your time in Chicago a little bit. So, sure. so you did your undergrad at U of A. Yes. So, and, but you had your, you have your dual citizenship. Yes. Is that from your time in Chicago? Uh, or did you have that before? It, it's concurrent, concurrent to it. Yeah. But, uh, um, and, and that story is a really long story that goes into the Spanish-American War. Um, like that, that's like, like generations long. You could write a 600-page epic novel about that. But um, I uh, went to Chicago. I'd mo- I should back this up. When I was, after I finished my undergraduate in, and this is a really long title, I did a Bachelor of Arts in the History of Art, Design, and Visual Culture. Okay. And... I started working here in Edmonton, like a lot of people, but I felt that I was missing something. And I think this resonates with a lot of people. If you go back 10, 12 years, Mm -hmm. I I felt I needed to see more of the world. And I ended up moving to New York. Um, I had, through this sort of very strange Spanish-American war connection, I had been eligible for um, to an immigration visa. So I actually took that opportunity. I moved to New York. I um, tried to be a writer. And then, like a lot of people, decided that I wanted to pursue further education. I needed to know more. Mm. And even as an art writer, I've been talking about that a lot this week. Um, I had this background in art writing. And I'm really grateful to my editors for giving me that opportunity at the time. But I needed to just understand more like I didn't know where to get information I didn't know how to parse the signal from Mm -hmm. the noise and I I um at that time decided to go move from New York to Chicago Mm -hmm. what is art writing art writing like art criticism oh I used to um have the great job of going around to art galleries mm-hmm. in Edmonton and previewing or reviewing their oh, exhibitions. Awesome. So you're like the Siskel and Ebert of, of art. Yeah, cool. I was. And I really loved it. Um, I say that now because I look at, uh, I just looked at the William Kentridge exhibition at the Art Gallery of Alberta, and that's an exhibition I would have loved to write a review of right. um, or have loved to write an essay on. It's really meaty. There's a lot of really interesting content in that. I can't imagine you have the time to do that I, now, even though time. you want to, and I, I'm sure yeah. it would be fantastic the, still. That's exactly it. But um, I actually, so I met with this art critic named James Elkins when I was living in New York, and I said, James, he wrote a, uh, he's written a lot on art criticism, and I said, I, I'm an art critic, I would love to pursue further studies, and I'm looking at this breadth of programs, and he said, don't apply to any of those. Mm go and do uh, the Masters of Visual and Critical Studies at the Art Institute of Chicago, where he taught, where he was chair of the department at the time. And I had never looked at this program, and I thought, all right, I'll give it a shot. Mm -hmm. I spent 
I kid you not, my last $50 applying to the Art Institute of Chicago. And, um, and then it was chance. And they called me and I got into art school. Um, they called me on a day I got my car towed, which if you ever live in New York City is absolutely... I didn't think a, you were supposed to have a car in New York. I, uh, <laughs> the things I learned about life uh, could be summed up in mm -hmm. my experience in New York City. <laughs> but honestly, um, yeah, I, I lived in Brooklyn. I had a car, which was not a good idea, but I needed it. Um, I was going up and down the highway a lot, mm. um, which I also wouldn't necessarily recommend. Right, because you had to go to different galleries and different art yeah, museums. Yeah, and I had a lot of friends. I lived upstate for a while, and uh, and so I had a lot of friends I was going upstate to see um, in Troy, uh, which is a big art center. It's incredible. Um, but I got my car towed this one day, had to ditch all of my plans for the day decided to do laundry um and sort of had one of those quiet moments that i think we all have in our life where you're like man i really hope that like life has something more in store for me mm -hmm. and then i got a call mm -hmm. and it was that to me was like if you've ever had a moment in your life where somebody's like some invisible force has put two hands on their back and pushed you in a direction. Mm -hmm. That was like the strongest feeling I've ever had where it's like, you got to do this. When it, you got the call. When I got the call. Right. It, it wasn't, maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't. It was like the force of the universe was like, this is the direction you need to go mm -hmm. in. This is, this is a good thing. Um, it wasn't free. You know, it's not like uh, that was an easy part, but it was um, a really powerful feeling that I guess 10 years later I have not forgotten right yeah it's incredible well there's something to be said for for the universe lining up but you still took the first step of applying there right I did and I think that uh, to me that seems like a lot of a lot of problems in people's lives are caused by the fact that they don't set a goal right they're just kind of floating down this river of life kind of bouncing in opportunities but they never ask themselves like like what would I like to do like you still like someone encouraged you to do that, but you're like, you know what? I think I, you thought about it, and you mm -hmm. and you and you came to the conclusion that that was a, that was a good idea. I knew I needed to know more. Mm. I had in the previous like six months applied to other schools, and I really like my applications were subpar, and part of it was because I was looking at two tracks. I was looking at this sort of investigative art track and I was looking at creative writing. I wanted to write my book. And um, a great Edmonton writer, Todd Babiak, told me it was a terrible idea. Um, having never Damn it, Todd. <laughs> and and he's, I wish him well, um, but it was good advice, and this is why it was good advice. Because um, he said, go and learn something about the world and let that inform your writing. Mm. He didn't read my writing and say, don't be a writer. He said, go and learn something and let that inform your writing. Mm and that will make you a better writer. Going to school to learn how to write better will not necessarily make you a better writer. 100%, yeah. yeah you gotta have that experience. Absolutely, so uh, I thought that was really good advice and it sort of, that's how it, it panned out. I got into a program that put me on a direction, uh, took me in a direction where I was able to know more and mm -hmm. figure out how to parse the signal from the noise. Not mm -hmm. like I'm an expert in it still, <laughs> but um, it was a, 
a really powerful experience and force in my life. Mm-hmm. So how long was that program? It was two years. Two years. And I, uh, again, when you talk about those two hands on your back pushing you towards something, I arrived in Chicago. I connected with an old friend and ended up teaching uh, concurrent to, um, I ended up teaching at Columbia concurrent to my studies and ended up teaching at the Art Institute concurrent to my studies, so that helped me survive. Mm-hmm. And uh, I met some of my best friends out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still go back and visit them, uh, and fell in love with, uh, at the time, lovable loser of a baseball team. That's changed now. <laughs> oh, so you I, started at the bottom. I started at the bottom. That's always the best, right? Yeah. yeah. You can say I've suffered. That's my problem with a lot of like new age sports fans. They hop on a team and it's like, you don't deserve to win. You haven't gone through a decade of darkness. Exactly. Like Like Golden Knights fans. God, get out of here. (laughs) Oilers fans, hang on. Because when it happens, it's it's absolutely rich. (laughs) But yeah, I was, um, uh, I moved to Chicago. My brother said, you have to pick a team. Mm. And I strongly suggest the Chicago Cubs. Yeah. <laughs> so every time he came into town, we'd go see a game, or every time his friends came into town, we'd go see a game. And uh, it's it's an interesting way to get to know a city mm. through its sports teams. For sure. Especially in a city like Chicago, which has a legacy of the Bears, the Cubs, the White Sox, the Bulls, Blackhawks. Um, the Blackhawks. Yeah. Uh, and I was there between two Stanley Cup wins. Oh, okay. So yeah. they were getting a little bit more of the attention. Uh, a little bit, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, actually, the day I left Chicago was the day they won their uh, second last Stanley Cup so in 2013. 2013, right? Yeah. It's sports just have this this power to bring people together from all cross sections of life, and you know it's it's so powerful. I noticed that I was um, at Jelena's fight on mm-hmm. Saturday. Were you there? I was not there, ago? but I, I uh, attend champs on a occasion oh, good. for studio. Plug for champs. You're yeah. welcome, Julia. <laughs> uh, She's and so a friend it was of mine. all over her her Instagram. Yeah. Well, it's yeah, it's really cool. Like you wouldn't think boxing, you know, boxing is a little bit I don't want to say outdated, but it's its peak was in the in the 90s, right? That's mm-hmm. when boxing was really at its peak and MMA's really taken the front line. But for a city like Edmonton, I just looked around that that conference center and to see so many people that I recognized from all different aspects. Like, oh, there's someone I used to play hockey with, and there's owner of a business downtown, and you know, there's so and so, and it was it was just really cool. And, uh, the only thing that I could compare it to that was anywhere close to to that in Edmonton would be like an Oilers game, right? Like mm-hmm. the power of sports to bring people together, no matter what your race, religion, sexual orientation is. Like it's so powerful. Absolutely, um, I really enjoy going to a hockey game or a baseball game baseball tends to have nicer weather uh so you know you're outside it's a sunny day you have a hot dog if mm-hmm. you drink beer you can have a beer mm-hmm. um but there's something about the conversations that happen in the stands yeah that i have come to really love that sitting there with my friends or my family and you're talking about the game and then you pause and you talk about something else going on in your life mm-hmm. and then you end up talking to your neighbors who are visiting from i don't know out of town or uh you know they never come to games and you have this really interesting communal experience which is also really personal and in some ways really private mm-hmm. um i i've come to think that you know you bond with people over these experiences yeah. in a way that 
you can't necessarily in the theater. Mm -hmm. I love the arts. Um, I have a foundation in the arts, as we've talked about, but um, you can't sit in an opera house, you can't sit in a symphony you can, and, and have these similar conversations. Right. Actually, the, the, one of the things I aspired to bring to art criticism and art education is the same experience that we have when you go to a spectator sport which is that you could sit down in an art gallery and look at a piece of art and you can talk about that work of art and then talk about other things going on in your life and you can experience the gallery not as a guest but as a, as a spectator as somebody who is there to an essential part of right. the actual yeah. exhibition you can't have the games without the fans you can't have the exhibition without the guests the spectator, the spectators yeah. yeah but i think the the fundamental difference there and and well, if you're looking at an opera, of course, yeah. is there's no downtime. There's no time between sure. between plays to, to chat. So there's that the one thing. But sports also, what it does is it unifies us all, like mm -hmm. against, you know, for a, a singular purpose or against a particular enemy, i.e. The, the away team, right? Yeah. And that is such a powerful thing. Like it, it, it crosses all boundaries and it's just like, no, 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 no. We're, we're all working towards this. It does. And something, um, I mean... In 2016, when the Cubs won the World Series, um, and this is a you know storied. It's 108 years in the making. Mm. It was. I was at an. This is before I should preface. This is before I was elected. I was at an event that night, a fundraiser, um, and everyone was. A lot of sports fans, I should say, not everyone, were sort of twitching in the audience because they <laughs> didn't know what was happening in this game. Right? right? It was Game Seven. And the Cubs had had this miraculous comeback. And um, you can now stream television on your yeah. phone. So I got it streaming and people were huddled around me checking out the game. And I watched it all in the car all the way home. I was not driving. I should preface <laughs> that. I was not driving. And I got home and my brother and his best friend were there. And we were all just glued to the TV. And uh, I was talking to friends in Chicago. I was watching uh, people update these stories from Twitter, it was this incredibly powerful experience to have sort of come with all these people over 108 years <laughs> across um, cities, states, countries uh, to, to sort of share in this moment. Mm -hmm. um, that was a really powerful right. experience. And it was around that time I decided to run for office, which is a uh, a whole other but not entirely unconnected story. Absolutely. Let's get there. But before we get mm -hmm. there, let's let's go. You worked um, you worked for the Democratic Party uh, and their campaign down in Chicago, did you not? I, I got to volunteer. You got to volunteer. I didn't get Sorry. to work. There's actually another Sarah Hamilton who mm -hmm. is also a Chicago Cubs fan who has also worked in politics at the municipal level. Oh, no. So a shout out to the other Sarah Hamilton. Yeah. Um, uh, who would call me the other Sarah Hamilton? There can be uh, only one. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, when I was living in Chicago, uh, we had to pick a thesis topic, and I was really interested in the heightened interest in the U.S. election. And coming from Canada, I never experienced that level of political awareness. Mm. So I thought it was 
we didn't have to have a thesis topic decided till December. I thought I'm going to volunteer for um, both political, the major political campaigns, the Republicans and the Democrats, and I'm going to see what it's like to actually be involved in the campaign. Well, the Democrats called me back. I think I've said this before. The Republicans didn't. They sent me a link to like do um, phone banking, but mm-hmm. from my computer, and that that didn't tether me. Right. And a lot of politics, a lot of volunteering in politics is about being tethered. Mm. So if nobody is coming and saying, hey, when are you coming out next? Right. You won't. You just won't because yeah. you're busy. It's you want to feel, in, feel invited. And you you want to feel like you're part of it. And we want to feel like we are part of something bigger than ourselves, mm-hmm. whether it is sports, whether right. it is politics. It's a human universal. Yeah, yeah. exactly. We want to be part of something meaningful. And so the Democrats were really good about calling and being like, hey, when can you come out and volunteer? When can you uh, come out and phone bank? Join us. Yeah, (laughs) join us. And when they know your name and they're calling you on the phone, it's really hard to say no. Mm -hmm. And then you go and you volunteer and they say, thank you so much for coming. When Mm -hmm. can you come back again? And when you're looking somebody in the whites of their eyes and they're asking you to do them a favor, Mm -hmm. it's actually a really hard thing to turn down. So I ended up volunteering for the Obama campaign. I don't want to make it sound like I did anything meaningful. <laughs> and I said, every little yeah. every little brick and mortar builds up the foundation. It eh? it does. And in politics, it's about um, not everyone can be the strategist. Mm-hmm. I've I subsequently ended up volunteering on a lot of campaigns, and not everyone gets to uh, be. A character on the West Wing. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're lucky, you get to be one of the people in the background, uh, walking around looking really stressed out. Uh, <laughs> but you rarely get to be the CJ or the Toby or the Josh Lyman. Okay, um, I'm going to trust you on all those references because okay. I don't well, watch the show. West Wing. I don't yeah. watch the show, but oh, I know a lot of people do. Yeah, it's um, it's awesome. Okay. A lot of sports references in it too. Okay, um, but. But it, yet, that volunteerism, especially on a campaign of that scale, is really important. Mm-hmm. And uh, something I s- sort of brought back to Canada with me, um, and further in po- my political involvement, was the importance of those volunteers. Mm-hmm. The world has enough strategists, yeah, right. you know, and uh, like the world has enough what do you call backseat coaches. <laughs> We need people armchair quarterbacks. Armchair quarterback. Yeah. We need people who can actually do execute. and execute. Mm-hmm. So was that tough going from? Well, not that you kind of went from one to the other, but being a Cubs fan, getting the sense of community in Chicago, you like really bound to it, and then going into politics, which is admittedly far more divisive and polarizing. Was that a challenge? And I don't know if the, I don't know if the. Um, Obama's election back then was quite as divisive as say Trump uh, Clinton was I okay so uh, uh, this might launch us into another conversation uh, this is what this is about let's go I, down all yeah, the rabbit what holes. I ended up using my experience in politics to talk about was something that ended up being really relevant in 2016 which is how um, there was this other conversation that happened at what's, what we call in politics the air game at the mm-hmm at the strategy level around internet memes mm-hmm. and how visual information was being deployed um, really succinctly to undermine the other campaign. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. And a good example of that from 2012 was um, the binders full of women memes that were going around about Mitt Romney or Paul Ryan um, had this sort of mansplaining uh, meme that was going around. And if you look deep enough, you saw the same kinds of things coming out about Obama mm -hmm. and what would have been sort of on, on 4chan and like some parts of Reddit and then later during 2016 jumped to Facebook, jumped to Twitter, mm -hmm. uh, lots of sort of subversive visual right what we call image macros yeah. as well. It's political comedy, but yeah. with a purpose, right? Like it's meant to be succinct, pithy, and and really warps people's perception because at the end of the day, we're just headline readers, right? Well, and that is the, I don't want to call it insidious because we often ascribe um, a motivation to technology mm -hmm. that technology is agnostic. Technology isn't good or evil. It's right. a tool. It's like saying, a hammer is good or a yeah. hammer is bad. They say don't attribute uh, to malevolence what you can attribute to ignorance, right? Yeah, but so, I mean, this is image macros, internet, also known as internet memes, are incredibly powerful because you have these layers, like you need like seven layers of understanding to to really comprehend a good internet meme. Okay. It's like an inside joke within an inside joke. Interesting. So this is, okay, this is this, like the, you, the actual breakdown of memes. I'd love yeah. to hear this. So if, if you um, look at a classic meme, I'm going to say a good one, okay, that I hope listeners will understand is like the Dos Equis meme. Yeah. Um, I don't always drink Dos Equis, but, or I don't always drink beer, but when I do, mm, it's Dos Equis. I prefer Dos Equis. Yeah. yeah. Um, so... What you will see over time, you can you can take the the central character mm -hmm. and his image, and you can take the original language. Mm -hmm. That is a single understanding of the of the meme, right? Mm -hmm. You took it from a commercial, you've made it into a, a non-moving visual representation. Mm -hmm. Then you can replace the dosekis with um, and the word beer with. Um, uh, this is not going to be funny, but I don't. Uh, always vote but when I do vote I vote for this candidate right you know and then you can replace the visual representation of the character the central character with someone else so it becomes this layered inside joke right and this is not funny because when you explain comedy it's not funny mm -hmm. but then you have an, a visual representation that is really deep and if you're not in, so in the in-group if you're not if you don't understand how it got to where it was then it's meaningless to you. Mm. But if you do understand how it got to where it was, you can't unsee it. Mm -hmm. And that's the powerful things, uh, thing about these uh, about memes is that you can't code them in the same way you can code language. It just in technology becomes an image file. Mm -hmm. So it can get through some of those filters that Facebook and Twitter set up that show you people yeah. that agree with you. Mm -hmm. Memes could be really powerful if deployed um, to to a let's say positive social um, social constructive socially constructive purpose. Right. What we saw in 2016 was that it was a very powerful way of disseminating ideas that could be unpopular. Mm -hmm. um, some of those racists, some of those nationalists, mm -hmm. some of those 
white nationalists, mm -hmm. uh, and that gave people pause. The Southern Poverty Law Center actually identified the Pepe the Frog meme as being uh, a hate image mm -hmm. in 2016. And I looked at that and I absolutely froze because when I was talking about memes in 2012, 2013, that was the natural conclusion right. that it would come to, that if you can perpetuate politically progressive ideas through internet memes, you can also perpetuate some really um, uh, politically regressive right. ideas. And unsavory ideas. And unsavory ideas. And that is what we got. And the problem and is... And it continues to exist. Yeah, and you can't trace the origin of it, right? Like, you... And you don't know who might hijack that for their cause, mm -hmm. right? You might have you might have a, a meme that's doing social good, and then all of a sudden, slowly, it starts getting morphed, and then all of a sudden, before you know it, like didn't Pepe the Frog just start as something that was funny? Yeah, like there was zero political backing to it. it right? Exactly, right. and then you see over time it acquired a meaning, and mm -hmm. now it's a meaning that's incredibly hard to take away from the image. Right. So, yeah, it's ab absolutely fascinating. And, yeah. and do you think we're going to see a decline in that as people sort of wise up? Like, it seems like the technology is slightly ahead of people's understanding of the technology. Which is always the case with technology. I think people, you know, I hope that adults, young, young people are there already. I think that, uh, that they be, we need to be more critical of what is served to us, whether it's um, an internet meme being served to us on Facebook or Twitter, uh, whether it's a story that doesn't mm. sound right. You know, we need to be critical of the information that we're getting. Yeah. We get so much information now that you see a headline and you think you, you don't have time to process it. A lot of people, if you spend time on social media, a lot of people don't read the actual stories. So yeah. headlines end up carrying a a lot of meaning right so I I hope we I don't think we can move away from the technology I think mm. that cats out of the bag um, but I do hope that we become more critical about what we are being served Ooh, ominous yeah, <laughs> with the lightning lightning yeah. striking the thunder outside yeah yeah that's that's exactly <laughs> what just happened lightning uh, lightning flashed and we've heard thunder so I don't uh, know if that'll get picked up I think like it's you know, I think it really, there's no there's no group responsibility that you're ever going to be able to lay on people. I think it needs to come down to the individual. And look, if you're going to share something, like, you're you're responsible for propagation of that idea. And, and if you're going to propagate it, you should know whether it's false, true, or, or somewhat true somewhere in the middle, or misleading, right? Like, a lot of headlines will grab your attention, then you'll read and you're like, oh, that's not nearly as sensationalist yeah. as the headline made it seem. But like you said, we're so busy with a million things on the go that we're just, you know, we've got five minutes in the elevator. Well, no elevator takes five minutes, but we've got five minutes sitting somewhere and we scroll through the headlines, right? Yeah. And you're like, oh, no way, I didn't know that. Oh, okay, move on to the next thing. Yeah. And I like, I really, I didn't pay any attention to politics until this last provincial election. And I really noticed it. And I'm like, like, how can both, like both these sides can't be right with the things that they're saying and, and they're probably both wrong in some cases too so I started trying to read through some of the platform policies and 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 dissect them from the headlines that were getting attributed to them it's like Jason Kenney is a racist it's like that's probably just patent, patently untrue like I, I'm sure I'm not sure he's ever done anything to demonstrate that or Rachel Notley is this whatever sure that's also not true I would and I don't want to weigh in on the personal beliefs of an individual but 
I one of the risks we run in in an era in which we sort of state things plainly. Um, no, I don't think I'm not going to say that that way. I think in which we say things um, simply, but not with simplicity. Mm. Is we tend to reduce complicated people to a single sentence, mm-hmm. and um, in politics, that's really tough. Um, I'm not speaking directly to one politician or another though we were just talking about some, but I think there is a tendency to reduce very complex issues to really simple statements. Mm-hmm. And I think it does those issues, I think it does individuals and, mm-hmm. and injustice. Um, I, I would say I'm gonna take it out of the Canadian context. When John McCain, Senator John McCain died, there was, that's, there was a very complicated conversation about his legacy Mm. i don't think you could look at you know you could weigh the balance of his life and say whether or not he um was one thing or another Mm -hmm. you know well what people need to come to terms with is we've all got light and dark in us we've all got a good side and a bad side and it's we all make mistakes and it's it's only in in acknowledging that dark side that you can truly come to grips with it and then try and be the good person, right? Yeah. And it's, you know, like like you said, trying to weigh the balance of his life too. Like that's so subjective based on your beliefs. Yeah. We're all complicated people, you know. Yeah. No, no one's making 100% perfect decisions. Uh, no. And I mean, that's the, that is the human fragility mm-hmm. of a democracy is that we elect people who we hope are less fragile than ourselves to mm-hmm. be our representatives. Um, but there is, there has to be, I think, a bit of an expectation that, y- as one of my friends says, you cannot fault humans for being human. <laughs> That's <laughs> like, a good point. Yeah, you, you gotta take the good with the bad. Yeah. Um, where do you think that intent comes into the equation, right? Like. Like measuring someone's intent of what they're saying. So here's an example. Say the environment versus the economy debate, right? Mm-hmm. A classic debate that goes back and forth. And you've got, you know, you've got economists, science, certain scientists saying that, you know, it's better for us to focus on doing economic good to bring to bring people up, say mm-hmm. out of abject poverty. And then you've got people on the environmental side saying, you know, we need to protect our planet at all costs. And then people, you know, on the on the economy side will get labeled, um, you know, uncaring. They'll get labeled apathetic, dispassionate. They don't care about people. It's like you're a climate denier. Or you don't care about the world. It's like if you're a pipeline, you're automatically anti-environment. And that mm-hmm. polarization of such a complex topic seems to be like such an issue. But really, like I have to believe, I hope that I, I do believe that people's intent on both sides of that are good. I think that one of the um, risks we are running now is that we set things up in exactly the way you just described them. That if you're not for something, you're against it. And it creates these false dichotomies, these mm. false oppositions that... Um, you can't, for instance, be for a strong and robust economy that includes resource um, resource development 
and also be conscious of the environment mm-hmm. and also be supporting climate change initiatives. Mm-hmm. Some people would say it's not possible to do one without the other. I do not believe we live in a world where of absolutes. Right. You know, because that hasn't been my experience. Um, so I think, and there will always be people on those um, those ends of the spectrum, but I think it behooves us to do better. Right. Do better for the economy. Do better for the environment. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of proponents of the economic argument would say that that doing better on say the environment has come with um, doing better economically that if you want to run a sustainable business your sustainable environmental practices have to be part of it Mm -hmm. so but i think we run huge risks and we see it at the municipal level as well that there there is no middle ground and part of it is because the middle ground doesn't sell papers it doesn't get it it's not clickbait the middle ground is not clickbait but there is there is such a there's a real thing and that's opportunity cost right like there is a point where you have to decide what your priorities are and what your value structure is you have to decide okay like yeah it's fine to say i'm for both economic development and the environment but there's going to come to a point where you're going to have to make a decision that compromises one or the other yeah there is uh, and there's going to be a time when you have to make environmental decisions that mm-hmm. might compromise your economic interests um, I don't think that there's an easy way to navigate that. I don't think I could write a, a manual on how you navigate that. I think it ends up being a really context-specific conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple weeks ago, I don't want to talk about it too much, but we, because um, the public hearing is still open, but we were talking about the EPCOR solar farm. Mm-hmm. And I think that that conversation of, the River Valley Bylaw versus the climate ch- action on climate change um, and sustainable energy, that tension is definitely there in that debate. And that's between maintaining the River Valley versus developing it? Is that the... Uh, so the proposal was for the... EPCOR, so where EPCOR has the E.W. Smith uh, water treatment plant right. to expand uh, the facility by adding solar panels. Oh, okay, um, and so you know, it's a fairly significant amount of solar panels, and it happens. The EW Smith uh, water treatment plant is in the River Valley. It's mm-hmm. in my ward, um, so it would mean an amendment to the River Valley Bylaw. Mm-hmm. Um, however, then there is an argument to be made that has been made for a while about the um, positive impacts of solar panels. So right. that public hearing is still open, but that is a tangible place in Edmonton where you see that tension mm-hmm. between how do you make a decision when there's two very worthy competing interests. Yeah, that was one of my questions is like when you, you have, you're privy to far more information than the average person when it comes to the particular topics that you're responsible for, the particular yeah. subjects. Um, so, you, you know, you've done the research and gone through all the material and say you come to the conclusion that is the counterpoint to what the public generally feels because, say, they haven't read the material, they've only seen the headlines, or there's mm-hmm. particular groups sort of promoting the the opposite case. How do you then approach that topic? Like, what? Because you're supposed to do what the people want you to do. Is that right? Like, as a as a public servant, how do you balance like what they want you to do versus what you think is best for them? 
I guess is my question. So we swear an oath as city councilors to act in the best interests of the city. Hmm. And that does cause tension because there might be issues that are not in the best interest of you, the people you represent, but are in the best interest of the city. Right. Um, I can't say that's easy. What I try to do is I have access to information. All of it is public um, with some rare exceptions when it includes uh, something for privacy uh, that's, that can't be public for privacy reasons. But for the most part, 99% of the information that we get is public. But I see the privilege in that I have time to sit and to read through the documents. I go to meetings all the time. And other others within my ward and the city can't always do that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot to keep up on uh, reports that are coming and all the meetings. Uh, so what I try to do is explain um, when there is dissatisfaction with my decision making, what my thinking was and how it was based on evidence. I... Um, try to make evidence-based decisions. Of course, those usually work out yeah. better than your than your <laughs> your gut shot reaction. I I mean, and I'm not going to fault people for the gut reaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's some people's evidence. Yeah, that's some people's yeah. bread and butter. Their intuition yeah. is spot on. And, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I have to explain my decision making to my constituents, mm-hmm. and I try and I don't know if I'm always successful but I try and explain how the evidence led me to mm-hmm. to where I'm where I made the decision and or how a decision came about mm. you know if I get constituents who are unsatisfied with the bike lanes they're unsatisfied um, with the amount of construction I just try and bridge that understanding between what they see happening and what the vision for the city is in the long term. Yeah, you've got to be super patient because at a point you've got, like it's got to get frustrating when you're just like you're getting complaints and you want to just feel like you say just trust me, <laughs> I, I'm doing this for you guys. Come on, like do you ever get to that point? I'm sure you you don't let that boil over, but it's got to be a little bit of that sometimes. Um, I th- I think it would be in unhuman to say that there are moments where you don't get frustrated. Mm-hmm. I think you, for me, I, I bounce back from those because I didn't just sign up for this job. I competed against eight other people mm-hmm. to get it. So uh, that is, that's part of the, that's part of the gig, if you will. Mm-hmm. Even on my worst days, even on the days where I have failed to communicate effectively on what we are doing and why we are doing it. And there are days where I can say that I, I wish I would have done things better. Um, I still wake up every day and feel it is a privilege to to be in this office, to do this job, because every day is wildly different from mm-hmm. the last one. There is no, there are no two days alike, yeah. um, and that is uh, like that that. I don't think I'd rather do anything else. Gratitude is the ultimate motivator. (laughs) When you're grateful for your position, you're just happy to to continue working, right? Yeah. It's keeping things in perspective in that sense. When we talk about people wanting to be part of something bigger than themselves, Mm -hmm. I get to, I I hope, wake up every day and help make a difference Mm -hmm. in in people's lives and in my city, in my hometown. And that is a big motivator, Mm -hmm. you know, and 
either, you know, I'll do this as long as I get to, either by choice or by force. Mm-hmm. Um, but that um, is really powerful. You know, I'm, I am grateful that I get to do it. That's awesome. Yeah. We've gotten real high level here, but I, I definitely don't want to mm-hmm. breeze past the point in which you've got to where you are now. So yeah. when you came back from Chicago, and, and I want to touch on uh, a prominent mentor that you had, Stephen yeah. Mandel, um, but I want to cycle back to when you were a kid because I read that you actually helped with one of his um, campaigns to get onto the public school trustee as a five-year-old. Uh, it wasn't that long ago, but it was. Uh, um, he, I grew up next door to the Mandels, mm-hmm. um, and we've spent holidays with them as long as I can remember. Uh, I think. You know, I got into politics. I helped Stephen on his uh, school board trustee run, um, but that was that was my mom. That was my mom as a when I was ten or eleven, mm-hmm. saying we're going to go out, we're going to door knock for somebody right. um, that we believe in. And unfortunately, Stephen didn't win that. Maybe in hindsight, it was positive mm-hmm. when he ran for Ward One City Councilor in two thousand one. Um, I was a high school student. I worked in his office on the weekends and helped uh, answer the phones and uh, make sure lawn signs went out. And he won that election by 33 votes. Now, um, I would love to take credit for it, but I'm not. I'm not going to. I'm not going to because I know a lot of people helped on that campaign, and they did way more work than ever did Mm -hmm. but um, it is really powerful as a young person to be involved in a political campaign and to see that you make a difference and my you know to pivot back to my mother um, she was out door knocking for candidates she believed in Mm. from when I was a really young age she was out door knocking for her MP she was out door knocking she took lawn signs for our MLA um, and she, she helped Stephen on every campaign that he ever ran. She was there. And I think that it is easy to feel like we don't... If you haven't been involved in the political process, that it's not for you. What my mom taught me was that there there is no s- sort of predetermination who the political process is for. Mm-hmm. It's for the people who show up. Mm-hmm. So show up. <laughs> what did you learn as as a ten year old seeing Stephen lose that uh, that campaign? Um, did you take any like it didn't discourage you from politics, obviously, and you kept kept kind of getting back on the horse. Well, he won like four others. Yeah, others. but at that time, as a kid who helped on something, was it it wasn't discouraging to you that you're like, oh, our guy didn't win? No, people lose elections. Yeah, and it's tough to t- tell a kid that though. It's not about, but it's not about the outcome it's about how you react to the outcome Mm. it's do you lose and and um tear down the system and do you attack the person who who won do you discredit the office do you throw your hands up and say it's hopeless no it's corrupt but you don't do that and i've seen people do that and we've we've i think we can scan the political landscape we can say that there are people who have done that but I think that if you are committed to service, public service, mm-hmm. you gotta know that there will be days where you take an L, and one of those days might be election day. Mm-hmm. When I ran for office, 
people kept asking me, what are you going to do if you lose? And I didn't really have an answer until the last week where I was like, I'm just going to get up. I'm going to keep doing what I've been doing. I'm going to get up and I'm going to go back to work. I'm going to hustle and I'm going to continue to find ways to serve my community. Um, Because if you take that leap and you believe in public service, you have to believe in the will of the public and you have to you have to believe that that service is still worthy even if you're not specifically the one in right. the office. Yeah. I mean that makes sense and, and if, if you're accountable, if if you believe in ownership, you look and must other than like all you can really say is I did everything I could and I just must not have done enough, right? To get there. I there's a lot of factors in which you will not be successful in an election. Mm-hmm. Um, any number of them from name recognition to um, door knocking, getting out your vote, um, the tone of the electorate. Mm-hmm. I mean, this last provincial election, um, there was a very specific tone. It got spicy the out there. It, it did get <laughs> spicy. Um, you know, there's a lot of reasons that you can account for not winning. Um, I don't think that it is a necessarily a referendum on somebody's um, ability to to serve. Right. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I read you knocked on over thirteen thousand doors in your campaign. In in my own campaign. Yeah. In your own campaign. What did you learn from that? What are some lessons that you learned from that, or what what sticks out from those thirteen thousand? <laughs> Uh, wear good shoes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Drink lots of water. And um, I, I can't, it would be disingenuous to say I remember 13,000 individual of course, people. But um, everyone in this city wants what's best for their city. Mm-hmm. We might not disagree. We might not agree on how we get there, but I did not talk to a single person that did not have a genuine love for our city. And talking to that many people about your city and what they wanted to see, what what they aspired for their city, what their hope was, mm-hmm. is very motivating. Yeah. What, what was the most common answer that time in terms, because I don't know what your questions were, but I assume it was, you know, what would you like, what direction would you like to see the city go in? We asked it in a different way. We said, what could your city do for you? Right. How, how could your life in Edmonton be just a little bit better? Um, we heard roads. We heard taxes. Um, we heard... LRT, we heard infrastructure, but we also heard River Valley and recreation, we heard climate change, we heard affordable housing. Um, There are, for 13,000 people we talked to, there were probably 13,000 slightly different answers. How do you, it must have just been a task to kind of code that and try and, you know, bring it all together. Yeah, we used an app Mm. called eCanvasser and I had some experience working with another app through the Liberal Party of Canada. So I had some, let's say, knowledge of what the back end should look like. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we used that when we built out eCanvasser. And I say we, it was me and my campaign manager just figuring out what we wanted the, let's say, decision tree for 
uh, canvassers on the door to look like. Right. Uh, and we both have a really strong, ex- had a lot of experience. We have strong knowledge of door knocking. And so it was basically working back from the end user to how do we build this platform into something that will serve us in our campaign, right. which is how we know we had 13,000 people right. that we talked to. <laughs> uh, so fast forward to the time you actually got elected and, mm-hmm. and you set foot in you know, city council and city hall. Yeah. What surprised you most about when you took the position? Um, a lot of people will say it's like drinking from a fire hose. I heard a better, um, I heard a better analogy, and that was, uh, there's how many raindrops, you know, right. hit you. I say that because I didn't necessarily struggle with the process. Um, I didn't struggle with the premise that one hour you'd be talking about waste management, next hour you'd be talking about tax assessments, next hour you'd be talking about um, parks or dog parks or fire pits. You know, you flip through issues. It was how quickly and converse, how conversant you had to be in mm. each of those issues. And I don't think you necessarily anticipate that part of being a city councillor. Um, the second part is how, even though you haven't changed, I like to think I haven't changed, even though you don't change, people around you change. Mm. And to be sensitive to that. Uh, because ordinary Sarah um, might ask a question of someone from administration or a member of the public, and they don't, you know, it's just somebody asking a question. As a city councillor, you ask a question, and it comes with this sort of weight behind it. And uh, that um, can sometimes not be a benevolent force in your life. So it's about balancing out um, and being sensitive to that change that happens. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. It's, um, you know, I've talked to a few other counselors and everyone's kind of got a, a different, um, you know, view on taking office. And But the, the common theme is, having to jump from so many topics. I mean, that could be someone's biggest strength or it could be their biggest weakness, right? Like it keeps it fresh and exciting, but you might be the per- type of person that loves to just sink your teeth into one topic and do a deep dive on it, right? And absolutely, and in fairness to uh, my colleagues um, and the people in administration, there are people who spend their entire lives working on a section of city the city government that we talk about in an hour mm-hmm. and then we're on to something else I think something that was really important for me as I wouldn't describe myself as a subject matter expert is that the ability to sort of skate on top of the I the question you're being asked to make a decision on mm-hmm. is really important that you may want to know everything there is to know about snow and ice control and if you listen to our cal- uh, meeting last year on calcium chloride, you will know everything there is to know about salts. Uh, but it's not my job to understand the nuances of salt. It's my job to make a decision based on the evidence pre- presented to me whether or not this is the best course of action for the city. And I think sometimes, even for me, it's a real struggle to stay at that level to answer that question. Right. 
Yeah, I, I think it's probably similar to the podcasting, right? I, I, I want to mm-hmm. learn everything it is, I can about someone, but at some times it's better to just take bullet points and be like, yeah. okay, perfect. I don't have to be an expert. They're probably the expert, all right? <laughs> I, I can rely on what they're going to tell me, and then I can make the, the question a decision around there. Yeah. Um, I read a really great quote um, from you. I don't think you meant to be quote on the, quoted on this, but oh, no. uh, you're just talking about like getting into politics, and at first you weren't super comfortable being in the spotlight, being in front of the cameras, and you said, I realized it didn't matter how small I made myself or how quiet I was. I was still going to catch hell. And so if you're going to catch hell, you may as well catch hell for something you believe in and something that is worth fighting for. Yeah. I think that was that's amazing because I'm going through something where I'm about to step out in front of something that's a divisive topic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just... I want to make sure that I believe in it. And I do believe in it, but I want to get my facts straight. I want to get my evidence straight. Um, but... That's not what I want to talk about. I want to ask: Is there, is there something that you've experienced so far, a certain issue that you've you've really had to do that with, a particular one? Um, a a couple ones. I mean, I got a lot of attention last year. I got frustrated over um, some of the things that were being said on the Access Without Fear policy, and we want to talk about catching hell. I caught a lot of hell on that policy, um, but I also got. Uh, over the last, over the weeks, um, almost months of uh, discord, I got really moving phone calls from people who said, you're talking about me and I need help and I want to know more. Mm. Um, And that is why you go into public life. I I couldn't describe it other than you go into public life um, for the phone calls from people who say thank you for sticking up for me. Mm-hmm. Um, that quote specifically was uh, <laughs> bringing it back to the Chicago Cubs. Um, that quote specifically was um, I was at a political convention the week the weekend after the Chicago Cubs won the World Series. And I had probably one of the worst political experiences of my life where I was at in, in meetings where I was being shot, like shouted down. Um, I was being called names I can't repeat. Mm. Um, and this isn't a censored podcast. You I can. If you, you can if you want. <laughs> I, but I, it's not helpful. You know, it gives air to the, the people who call the names. Yeah. But it was, I had spent, up until that moment, I had spent my life and my, my career as a political volunteer saying like let somebody else be in front of the camera it's not about i'm i would say i'm not an egotistical person Mm -hmm. but um let let somebody else take the media on this and then i'm in a situation where i am just trying to support my community i'm trying to make positive change and somebody else is coming in and they don't see that what they see you as is an obstacle Mm. to getting what they want and at that point, I was like, why am I making myself small? Why am I making myself less? Mm-hmm. And with, you know, seeing, seeing my favorite team of all time win the World Series, and then that was the weekend right before Hillary Clinton lost the election. And I thought, there's going to be people who see these two events and think that the impossible is possible and think that the impossible will never be possible. And I, 
was feeling lacking. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I was also feeling like, well, if not me, who? Right. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's it's not. What's the saying? It's not. It's not noble to be weak, right? If you're ineffectual and you can't do anything. Just because you don't do anything bad doesn't make you noble. The, the noblest people are the people that can do damage and choose not to, right? So I think it's, it's, it's our responsibility to build ourselves up as human beings and speak up for what you believe in. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tweak that a little bit. Okay. I'll say it's not, it's, it's not noble to tr- not try. Correct. That... Or agree. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. I don't know if it's yeah. correct, but I agree. <laughs> yeah. But, um, and I, I'm, I sometimes struggle with our conversations around strength and weakness because um, I would consider myself a strong person some days. Mm-hmm. And some days that is not how I feel. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think it's okay to be vulnerable and to you know, talk about humans being human. Um, it's okay to be vulnerable. What I have um, limited patience for is people who say um, someone should do something about something that we all see as being wrong or mm-hmm. we all see as being inadequate. Someone should do something about that, but it's not going to be me. Yeah. And there's a lot of reasons that people don't volunteer in their communities, that they don't. Um, participate in the electoral process but one of the reasons I don't accept is that they um, that that it's somebody else's problem right um, I know people your life gets consumed um, with family and work and I think it's a good relatively good thing that we live in a political climate in Canada where you can trust your elected representatives to act in your best interest. Mm. I think some of the heated rhetoric we're seeing in the States and the engagement on that is because people are starting to lose that trust that people are acting in their best interest. Um, But going back to what we talked about, people that we derive meaning from being part of something greater than ourselves. Mm -hmm. Not, and it's not the same for everyone, but I don't accept apathy as a, a reason to to not do something or it's a right. reason to not participate right kind of don't complain if you're not going to offer a solution right <laughs> if you want to complain to something offer an alternative right yeah, yeah. um but and and i do believe in constructive solution mm-hmm. you know but you know i also believe in your charter right to complain <laughs> Everyone gets so caught up in the in the in the individual rights, but everyone seems to forget about your individual responsibilities that are the countermeasure to your rights. You know, if you're going to get the right, you have a responsibility at the same time. We do need to talk about that piece of it. That we all have a an individual right to things, but mm-hmm. we have a lot of responsibilities, and that includes being an active and engaged member of the society. Mm-hmm that we are part of mm-hmm. well that's a little bit of what I'm trying to do with the podcast is yeah. is you know bring to light sort of the inner workings of the city to people who 
are to no fault of their own tied up with a lot of important stuff yeah everyone wants to be successful everyone's trying to keep up with the joneses and and be the best of what they do and everyone wants to be the best or at least everyone likes to be the best so yeah. so you can't fault someone for for putting all their attention into that but no and i i i mean we've talked about this on public engagement it's really hard to compete with you know when you're closing a, a lane in someone's neighborhood mm-hmm. you're doing going to do construction and you'll oftentimes we used to hear well there was no public engagement there maybe was but w- when you are competing at the same level with like the hockey game and kids soccer practice on the weekends mm-hmm. and uh, sick, family on, sick family members sick family member what's is, going on yeah. in your personal life hanging out with your friends yeah. like you you have to recognize that Mm -hmm. those are people's priorities and those are important and they should be people's priorities Mm -hmm. um but you know you got to find a way to break through that in some way and and engage people on something if it's if you think it's really important Mm -hmm. if it's really important right at least give them the opportunity to know what's happening yeah absolutely yeah um well i really appreciate this conversation i've got one more question for you um what is your favorite part about edmonton but an answer that you don't think anyone else would give. Um, What's your little your little personal slice of heaven within within Edmonton? Okay, I'm gonna run through everything I think people have said. Okay. Um, like the River Valley. You are analytical. Yeah. Okay, analyze everything that's been said, and then whatever's left over is mine. <laughs> well, there's um, actually. I think it's a really good city um, to fall in love with ideas. Mm. Yeah, I I love a lot of things about Edmonton, including the River Valley, but um, it's a city where people are generally very supportive of you if you want to do something cool, like new and cool, or you aspire to end poverty, or you aspire to. Um, you know, build something unique mm. here. Um, I've heard it described as whimsy. That you whimsy. always need that whimsy. <laughs> but I've had, and having lived in other cities, people here are so receptive to compelling ideas. Hmm. And I think it creates really strong connections between people who live in the city because you are invited to be part of something really Mm -hmm. cool really early on Mm -hmm. well there's two things that are great about that and the first well maybe more but the two things that jump out to me is it's so easy to be critical it's Mm -hmm. so easy to just put things down oh that sucks or this sucks like everyone can be a critic right yeah but then the other part of that is to have that to have that sense within the community of being able to have these bold ideas for example you do your best work when you're not afraid of failing, right? So when you know that you can bring something a little eccentric to the table and have people be supportive of that, you're not, to use a hockey metaphor, holding your stick too tight, you know? You're, yeah. you're, you're loose out there, you're feeling good. And I think that's, that's such an important environment for innovation. Yeah, the, I, during the campaign, I described Edmonton as a city where the streets aren't yet named. Hmm. That's not entirely true because we have a lot of streets that are named, but you go to other cities, we'll loop back to Chicago, or you go to New York, 
the streets are already named. You know, you got Broadway, you have State Street, you have Roosevelt. In Edmonton, there's, I guess it's a way of saying there's still a lot of opportunity to build our city. I love it. That's perfect. Yeah. I can't think of a better way to end the podcast because <laughs> I've already taken up over an hour of your time. But, uh, Councilor, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. It was incredibly enjoyable conversation. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Um, for, for anyone who, who wants to follow along, you're on Twitter. At SJL Hamilton uh, and Instagram at Sarah underscore Hamilton underscore Edig. Perfect. Well, I'll tag you in all the show notes and, and all that stuff. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Take care. See ya. Hey again, everyone. One more thing. I just want to say sincere thanks for listening. I'm continually blown away that you guys support the podcast. Uh, And even though sometimes it feels like a lot of work, it is super fulfilling. Uh, I lied. This is the last thing for the day. The Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATV, is happy to be partnering with Seat Giant to offer you a deal on tickets to major sporting events, big concerts, popular theater throughout North America, and more. Visit SeatGiant.ca to find tickets. Use the promo code APN at checkout to get 5% off your purchase. You'll save a bit, and the network gets a little cut of the purchase too. SeatGiant is a Canadian-owned and operated, and it guarantees every ticket. So help yourself to a great experience while helping the Alberta Podcast Network, and me and other podcast producers, uh, and all the Canadian business owners, everybody. Visit seatgiant.ca and use the offer code APN. Thanks for listening, guys, and look forward to seeing you next week. We got a good one. Bye.